If you have your Bibles, look with me to John chapter 6. We continue our series entitled Faces, and we are emphasizing in this series the importance of being like Jesus in our daily life. The various people that you come in contact with, those are not just empty faces. They are people that you have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in their life. And so as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, we've seen over and over again how Jesus would encounter people. He would look into the face of real people and how he would minister to them. And you never know the impact that you might have, how God might multiply your kindness, your love, your generosity, whenever you just simply try to be like Christ and reach out to the people in the world around you. Now let me ask you a question to begin with today. In what areas of your life is God challenging you or wanting you to think bigger? In what areas of your life is God challenging you to think bigger, to move beyond the box, to move beyond the comfort zone? Where is God expanding your vision and saying, dream a God-sized dream? One of the tragedies that happens to us as we become adults and as we get older is that often we quit dreaming. We quit thinking about what can be. We quit thinking about Uh, what God could do. And we start settling for what we know. We settle for what is comfortable. And we quit really experiencing a life that is lived in faith. You see, whenever God calls us to a God-sized dream, it always creates within us a crisis. And that crisis will collide with our senses of fear, and sometimes our sense of logic, because God's ways are not always our first choice. God-sized dreams, they will call us to a place where we have to take what little we have and place it in His hands. They will call us to a place where we have to trust Him with all of ourselves. God-sized dreams takes the faith that we have And it multiplies that faith. And through the power of God, when we give Him ourselves, when we trust Him and follow Him, He can use our one and only life to impact hundreds, if not thousands of lives around us. So we see those principles illustrated today in our story. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So why, why was the crowd following Jesus? They saw the signs that he was performing. He, he was doing spectacular things, and it was drawing a crowd. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now that verse is very encouraging to me. Because even Jesus, when he climbed a mountain, had to sit down at the top, okay? I I can relate to that, getting up to the top of the mountain and being like, you know, Jesus got to the top of the mountain and he sat down there with his disciples and they pulled out their tuna fish, I guess, and started eating, but they, they reached the top of the mountain. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. 
At this point in Jesus' ministry, the, the road to the cross, Christ is at the height of his popularity. At this point, he has thousands of followers on Twitter. He is the lead story on TMZ. They are following his miracles. Huge crowds of people are gathering around his teaching. Great miracles are occurring. And it's right here that some of Jesus' most famous teaching happens. It's here that we have the Sermon on the Mount that you see in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's here that we have the parables of the kingdom that you see in Matthew chapter 13. And so at the height of his popularity, when all the crowds are coming to him, Jesus decides it's time for the midterm exam. He decides to test his disciples. And so he tells them to get out their blue books. It's time for a test. The Bible says in verse 5, Therefore, Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him. And so he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Now notice why he asked them this in verse 6. He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now Jesus gives them a one-question test. When I was a senior in college, I had a professor who used to give one test question test. Those were harrowing experiences. You know, what will the question be? And then you had to write an entire, you had to fill up, the, they still have the blue books in college and stuff? You had to fill up the entire blue book on the, on the essay question. So here was Jesus' one question test. Where will we buy food so that these people can eat? And it created within the disciples a crisis. Here's the test. Here's the question. How are we going to feed these people? So then the Jeopardy music begins. And slowly the disciples begin to submit their answers. Now the first solution the disciples came up with was to send the people away. John doesn't record this, but Mark in his gospel records it. In verse 35, the Bible says, When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Now this was a practical, efficient solution. This made perfect sense. It's late at night. The place is a wilderness. Food, though, is available in the villages. So let's send the people away, and they can buy their own food, spend their own money, and buy food for themselves, and then maybe tomorrow morning we can have church. Tomorrow morning, if they're still around, maybe then we can have our our teaching time, and and they can interact with you, Jesus. And so that's the first solution, a practical, make sense, 
They bring it to Jesus, and he goes, no, not going to work. Takes out his red ink pen, marks a big X on that answer. Well, then there's a second solution, and that solution is to check the budget. And this answer is submitted by Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, which was nearby. And if you study Philip throughout Scripture, he seems to have been a problem solver. He, I think he was an analyzer. I can relate to him a little bit. He was also Simon Peter's brother. And so Simon Peter was probably getting into problems all the time. You know, he was the ultimate live-in-the-moment guy, Simon Peter was. And so Philip was probably the guy over there next to Peter going, no, you need to come over this way. That, that doesn't make sense. So Philip probably got with Judas, who was the treasurer of the disciples, and he checked the available financial resources. So Philip gets out his, his iPhone, pulls up his calculator, and he says, let's see, we have, we have enough money here. We have about 200 days wages, so we, we could buy that much bread, and it would be enough to, I, I think it would be enough to feed everybody in the crowd except for one problem. They would not get very much. They might only get a bite or two. So that was not going to, that was not going to solve the problem. So Philip's answer to Jesus is essentially, we can't afford to feed them. You know, it's going to cost, we have 200 denarii, it's going to cost 200 days wages. Uh, We cannot afford to do this. Now, there was a third solution, and that solution was to gather the available resources. Now, that solution was submitted by Andrew. I think Andrew may have been a military man. Every military man that I know of, when they have a problem, one of the first things they do is they start, they start gathering the available resources. Okay, let's take inventory. What do we have? How can we put together a a package? How can we put together something that will solve the problem? And to Andrew's credit, he had gone out into the crowd, and he was surveying the crowd to check for available resources. And I can see the scene. Jesus is asking how we're going to feed these people. Uh, There's committee meetings going on, there's people talking, there's people trying to figure things out, maybe even some arguments beginning to break out, and Andrew says, hey, hey, there's a boy over here, I I found this boy, and and he has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many? In other words, uh, he's got five little loaves of bread. Not a big semi-truck loaf, but like the kind you might get at the table whenever you are at a restaurant. And he has two fish. Now, these were not Jonah's fish. These were little bitty fish. He's got two fish. And look at all these people. This will not even make a dent in the crowd. So let's define the problem thus far. The sun is going down. We are in the wilderness And we don't have any food. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a scary place to be. I've never been in the wilderness without food while the sun was coming down. But I have been in the wilderness before when the sun was coming down, the temperature was dropping down below freezing, I didn't have shelter, and my buddy... uh, 
didn't have the, the proper clothing. And so it was the situation where we were trying to get to civilization before the sun went down because we knew if the sun went down, we were in a lot of trouble. Well, the crowd is huge. And the crowd is also hungry. Now, I know a few things about hungry crowds. Because every Sunday, uh, about noon, this crowd starts getting hungry. And after you get hungry, your blood sugar starts dropping, and you, start, you quit listening, you start getting... You know, people don't do well when they're hungry. So the sun's going down, the crowd is huge, they're out in the wilderness. Jesus is being hard-headed, probably, in the minds of the disciples. Send them away, Jesus. He's like, no, how are we going to feed them? They can't afford to feed them. They've checked the bank. They don't, they don't, they don't want to part with those resources. And so the only available resources they have is this little kid's lunch. So the disciples gather together. I could see the huddle right now. Peter's in the huddle. He said, all right, boys, what are we going to do? Well, Philip says, well, before we submit our final answer, let's conduct an online poll. So they get on Facebook, and they do an online poll. They get the results back, and they come to Jesus and say, okay, we have our final results here. All the disciples are in agreement, and 95% of the people on Facebook are in agreement that the solution here is that we need to send them away. Send them away. We cannot handle the crowd. We cannot accommodate the needs here. Well, there was a fourth solution, and that fourth solution was God's solution, and that was for them to take what little they had and give it to God. Take what you have and give it to God and let Him do something with it. So the Bible says in verse 10 that Jesus said, have the people sit down, and I, I can I can almost imagine the, the tone of voice. Just have them sit down, right? Just sit them down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. And the men numbered about 5,000. So you can picture with women and children, probably over 10,000 people. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told the disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And so they collected them and filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. You see, God took what little they had and he multiplied it. This is a miracle of God. God did something here that only God could do. They took what they had, they put it in the hands of God, and he multiplied it. God provided more than anybody could have imagined. Nobody could have imagined that everybody in the place would eat until they were full, till they were expanding their belts. God provided in a way that nobody could have imagined. God even provided a take-home box and probably a fortune cookie for every one of the disciples. The next day, as they were eating those leftovers, they had to think about, 
the miracle over and over and over again. It's amazing what God can do when you are willing to take what you have and give it to God. You say, I don't have all the answers. Good. Take what you have and give it to God. I don't have much. That's all right. Take what you have and give it to God. It's amazing what he can do when you trust him. Maybe it's time for you to start trusting God with your talents. Use the talents, the experiences, the the gifts that you have, and use those in service. Maybe it's time for you to get involved in what's happening here, to no longer just sit in the stands, but to get in the game. Maybe it's time for you to figure out ways that you are you, you and your family can impact the community around you and start serving people around you. You say, well, Lash, I'm imperfect. I, I don't have much talent. I've, I've got baggage in my past. Good. There are no perfect people in the kingdom of God except for Jesus Christ. You know, we don't want perfect people. We're all imperfect people. We're all sinners. If we understand that we are saved by grace, that we are not perfect, then we are right in the perfect place for God to start using us. It's that person that thinks that they've never done anything wrong that's scary. I often like to say the scariest theologian in the room is the one who has all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be a superstar. You just have to be willing to take what you have and give it to God. Look for that opportunity to reach out. Look for that opportunity to get involved. If you have an hour a week, if you have 10 hours a week, look for those opportunities to invest your time and your person and your talents in what God is doing. Maybe it's time for you to start trusting God with your finances. In church life, there is what is sometimes called the 80-20 rule. And a lot of times how it's applied is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in a church. Uh, at Murphy Road, that's not really accurate. If you, if you look at our church, uh, we have a lot of people serving in different capacities, whether it's VBS, pumpkin patch, life groups, uh, unloading trucks of pumpkin, whatever it might be. Uh, our church has a high percentage of people involved in some area of service, and, and we want that to continue. We, we want people to be involved in service, but when it comes to finances, our budget, our offerings, generally it's about 20% of the people provide 80% of the offerings. And so I've been asking myself the question, why is it that so many of God's people don't live generously? Don't give back to God generously. Don't look at it as an opportunity to worship God. And I came up with a a few answers. I I think, number one, we're afraid. If, If I tithe, if I go from being a zero giver to being a generous giver, if I go from just tipping God to really giving God a a serious offering every week. What if? What if I get laid off? What What if I need that money for a medical expense? And so the fear starts to come on us of, I won't have my lunch. If I give my two fish and my five barley loaves, then 
I may not have anything to eat. I was the only one smart enough to bring a lunch. So if I give this to God, then I may be without. And we sometimes get afraid and we let that fear overcome us and we forget that Jesus taught us to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added unto you. Maybe God doesn't always give us everything we want. But God has told his children, I will make sure that you have what you need. Sometimes I think we don't give because we feel inadequate. I don't make much money. I, I don't have much to give. And so we just don't think what we have will make any difference. Well, this little boy, all he had was five barley loaves and two fish. But he gave it. And did it make a difference? It made a huge difference. You may have a minimum wage job and you think, well, I, I, that doesn't make any difference. You can give. God can use it. Sometimes we just don't realize. We don't realize what God can do whenever we honor Him by giving. Worship Him by giving. You see, God wants to multiply what we have. Sometimes we don't realize that whenever you give to the offering here, uh, every dollar that you give, a portion of that goes to make a difference in your county, in your state, uh, around the nation, around the world. That whenever you give here, it has a multiplying impact. We don't realize what God does whenever we just honor Him and say, here's my lunch. Take it. Do with it what you will. And then sometimes we don't give because our priorities are off. We are, we're so consumed in our world with our $4 coffees and our $12 movie tickets and we want that so badly that we don't honor God first. And so we have an attitude that is similar to the disciples. Just send them away. Let them take care of themselves. They'll be okay. They don't need me. I can't really help them. can't really afford to do anything. Maybe it's time to start trusting God with your finances and realizing that giving is an opportunity to worship Him and see Him work. Maybe it's time for you to start trusting God with your vision. If you look at the story of Jesus, he always had a big vision. He always wanted to do more. Uh, he gives them the great commission. Go and make disciples. And I can hear the disciples here. All right, Lord, we can do that. Let's go and make disciples. Let's head down to Jerusalem. And then he says, oh, by the way, I want you to make disciples of all nations. Huh? Every people group in the world? I'm supposed to make a disciple? Yeah, that's my vision. You see, sometimes our vision is small, but Jesus had a big vision. Jesus trusted in God's abilities. The disciples trusted in their abilities. Jesus' faith was in the unseen. The disciples couldn't get beyond the empirical world, what they could see. The disciples were even skeptical, but they gave what little they had to Jesus. The boys' lunch. And God transformed that little vision into something big. All right, back to my original question. I'm almost through. In what areas of your life is God wanting you to think bigger? In what areas of your life is God wanting you to move beyond the box, move out of the comfort zone? 
Where is God challenging you? Where do you feel that crisis stirring in your heart even as I speak? Because you know there's some places in your life where God is saying, you need to live God-sized here, not your size. You need to supersize it. Where is it? It might be in your service. Maybe God is saying to you, hey, it's time for you to get involved in some of the mission work that's going on here. It's time for you to go on a mission trip. Hey, you know Spanish. Brother Oscar could use some help with the Spanish service, and he could use your help there. Hey, you can help people on Wednesday nights learn English in our ESL ministries. You can help Benoit with our Indian church plant. Hey, you can help those homeless that that were helped last week with the church under the tree ministry that we're trying to connect with. Hey, you can be involved in, in the mission work that's going on in India. You can be involved in the mission work that's going on in Thailand. Hey, you can be involved in what we do at Founders Plaza every week or Orchard Park every week as we take church to some senior citizens in our community that can't come to church. Hey, you can start getting involved in the mission work that's taking place uh, in your community and around your world. Maybe uh, God is saying, hey, you can be a life group leader. You could be a teacher in a life group. Maybe you could be a care coordinator in a life group. You can take a position of leadership that says, I'm, I'm going to be a, a fellowship coordinator. You could, you could be a team member. Maybe there's a team that has a vacancy and, and God's saying to you, hey, you need to get involved in service and you need to start getting on that team and, and being involved and thinking, bigger when it comes to service. You say, but Lash, you don't understand my schedule. My schedule is just packed out. I'm always gone. I can't really, I don't have, I have zero time. You're lucky I'm here today. All right, maybe that's reality. Maybe you don't really have any time to volunteer in different things, but there's a, there's a gift that, that God's really began to show me in recent times. It's the gift of being a resourcer. Maybe you don't have the time to be able to get involved in all the things that you really want to get involved in, but you can resource those ministries so that other people can do what God has called them to do. Maybe God is telling you it's time for you to think bigger in your life callings instead of just seeing yourself as a student who goes to class and hopes to get enough good grades to graduate one day. Uh, You start seeing yourself as a student who can go to class and impact the school that you're in. Same thing with teachers and nurses and various professionals. God can use you to impact the place where you work. Maybe God is saying it's time for you to go back to school. Uh, You're 40 years old. You've been dating her for 10 years. It's time for you to propose. Maybe God is saying it's time for a new career, a, a new life stage. Maybe God's saying now the time to start a family. It's time for you to move beyond your comfort zone. You've been working to get all those kids out of the house, and now you're like, woo, I can play golf every day. And God's saying, no, instead of using all that time to play golf, play golf, have fun. But instead of using all that time to play golf, maybe now you have some more time to give to the church and to give to ministry. Maybe God's saying it's time for you to think bigger when it comes to your church. Instead of just coming and sitting and going home, maybe you need to get involved here and make some friends and get to know some people and develop some relationships. Let the guard down. Open the gate to the privacy fence and say, come on into my life. I want to meet you. I want to get to know you. I want some people in my life that I'm accountable to. Maybe God is saying, hey, you've been visiting this church for months. It's time for you to join in membership. I know you like the visitor parking By the way, after six months, visitor parking moves back to behind the dumpster. But maybe God is saying, hey, it's time for you to join this church and commit to this church family and say, 
this is where we worship. This is where we're growing. This is where we're serving. We are here. We're committed to what God is doing here. And the church is going to come alongside you and help you in your life's journey. Maybe God is saying it's time for you to go deeper in your spiritual growth. You've been that individual. You go to church. You read your Bible. You go to life group. You check off the boxes. But God is saying, hey, I don't want Christianity just to be something you do. I want Christianity to be something that you are. God is saying it's time for you to quit holding back areas of your heart, areas of your life from me. It's time for you to go all in. Don't just give him three loaves and one fish. Give him five loaves and two fishes. Where is it in your life that God is saying, dream bigger, go deeper, go farther. My vision is bigger than your vision. When God calls you to a God-sized dream, I promise you it's going to create a crisis within your soul. Why? Because God-sized dreams, they always collide with our fears, our limitations, even our sense of logic, the scripts that we write for our own lives. God says, trust me, acknowledge me, lean not unto your own understanding, I will direct your paths. But when those dreams begin to come out there, and we're not really sure if we can do this, and he puts us in zones that are uncomfortable, it always stirs within us fear. God-sized dreams call us to a place where we have to give what little we have to him. But when we're willing to trust God, when we're willing to trust him and put our faith in him, that's when he starts multiplying our life. That's when he starts using us in ways that we never could imagine when we're willing to give him the totality of ourselves. Hey, listen, I don't know about you, but I want my own stories. I want my own stories of faith. I read stories in magazines, on the Internet, about how people trust God. You read stories in the Bible about how people trusted God. You hear these great things that God has done. I want those own stories from I want those stories from my life. I want my life to make a difference. I want to be able to invest my life in ways that whenever I'm dead and gone, my children and grandchildren are still being impacted. I want to invest my life in my community and the world around me so that the world that my children and grandchildren grow up in is a place where they are free to worship God. It's a place where the gospel is being uh, preached. It's a place where hearts are being changed. Like you, there are things about our nation that concern me, that cause me to worry, and I think, what is this world going to be like in 50 years? But then you think about the reality that the one thing that can change the human heart is the gospel, and I have the opportunity to invest my life in the gospel, and so the greatest way for me to make a difference in this world that really lasts is to invest in that which transforms the soul the gospel? I don't want to reach the end of my life and just get a safety award. I don't want to reach the end of my life and only be able to say I was comfortable. I want to live my life in such a way that it impacts others. And I believe you want the same thing. You do. So take what you have. Give it to God. And let him multiply your one and only life in ways that you could never imagine. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of worship?
I'm at the front here. If there's anything I can pray with you about, if, if you need to make a decision today, maybe the Lord's calling you to salvation. Maybe he's calling you to be a part of this church. I'll, I'll be here at the front. I would be glad to pray with you. Father, we stand here today with our five loaves and our two fish. And we're faced with the question, how do we feed these people? And we realize that the task is bigger than any one of us. That you have to do something that we can't do on our own. And so we find ourselves faced with the temptation, do I consume the small lunch? Be selfish and just think of me? Or do I use my life in a way that is multiplied? Do I give myself to you? Do I give my talents to you? Do I give my vision to you? Let you use my one and only life to transform the faces of those around me. Father, we face the same with our church. Do we seek a church where we're comfortable? Or do we seek a church that truly tries to transform the community? To reach out to people, to minister to them at their point of need. Father, I pray that we might give it all to you and trust you. May we be people of faith, not just in our verbiage, but in our actions. May Christianity be something that we are. May we be genuine and authentic. May the living water of Jesus Christ flow through us. May your name, may your fame be proclaimed to every nation on the earth. May souls be saved, lives changed, communities transformed. Lord, take us and multiply us. Take the gospel Multiply it. Lord, do a work that drops our jaw and causes us to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and say, this is God. He is mighty. He is great. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.